This week on the Saber.com podcast, we look back at Virginia's recent basketball wins against Georgia Tech and Syracuse, plus look ahead to Who's versus Hokies. In the weekly segment on football positions, it's time to talk defensive line. And in the music segment, guitar talk. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. And we're back at it again here on the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. We'll recap the past couple of men's basketball games, Georgia Tech and Syracuse, as UVA keeps their ACC winning streak going. We'll preview the upcoming game with the Hokies. Talk a little bit about the uh, defensive line as we kind of go position by position football-wise. And we'll talk a little Gibson guitars. There's some new signature uh, Gibson guitars that have been announced in recent days, and we'll kind of go back through the uh, list of all-time greatest Gibson guitar players, good old Les Paul. So that'll be our musical segment at the end, but uh, we welcome in Chris Wright and Chris Horn from the Saber.com. Gentlemen, it's been interesting these past couple of games. There was a squeaker over Georgia Tech, and uh, then the pretty much a clinic <laughs> against Syracuse. So Chris Wright, you want to start first with that uh, tech game? What did you see that had uh, the who's down double digits there uh, about halfway through the second half? And then they they put together a nice ending to the game and were able to pull it out by a bucket. The Georgia Tech game was interesting because, I mean, that's one of the better teams, you know, in terms of the top half of the ACC. Um, so you expected them to be a challenge because they do have good athletes, some very experienced players. And then they have, you know, they played well <laughs> on top of that. So um, Alvarado, is that, if I'm saying it right, played very well through the first 30 minutes. Um, and so that was a big key for that. Usher played well early. Virginia was losing battles at the rim a lot. They had a lot of opportunities where they drove to the rim and were unable to finish. Uh, so that's what kind of got them behind is I thought the scheme or, or the approach was reasonable and they got decent attempts, but Georgia Tech kept winning at the rim, you know, when somebody would get there. And, and a big key to Virginia's success through the early part of the season has been improving their finishing at the rim. That was one reason the offense struggled last year. It had gotten better this year. And then Georgia tech seemed to, uh, to bother those. Right. So all of that kind of perfect storm of things, experience, several guys playing well, and then stopping Virginia at the rim left Virginia down 11 with what 15 and a half minutes to go, 15 minutes to go or something like that. And then Virginia slowly started to reel it back in. And then the last 10 minutes, the type of defense we're used to seeing at Virginia really, settled in right early on they were still having a few you know like uh, screen and roll issues where they'd get a a pocket pass that beat somebody or a transition three would beat somebody because you know unsettled defense which we saw a little bit in the early games this season uh were a defensive problem but then all of a sudden the last 10 minutes it looked very much like what we're so used to seeing right like georgia tech didn't get really any good looks a lot of individual defenders really stepped up jay huff shut down the post uh, against Wright, and then uh, Virginia really contained those guards from there on out. You know, once they got the defense right, they, they made that run into the lead. So it wasn't ideal, but it was good, I think, for them to be tested uh, in ACC play, which there have not been otherwise, <laughs> other than that game. Yeah, it was kind of curious, too. Uh, Chris Horn, they seem to have quite a size advantage. UVA, you know, this year especially, just has the <laughs> so many, uh, so much length and, and height. And Georgia Tech had one six nine guy and a couple of six seven guys, and that was about it. But they were somehow able to kind of, you know, Huff did end up with eighteen. But uh, 
you know, played 30 minutes and, you know, Kafaro got in there for about nine minutes. So what did you see in terms of why we maybe couldn't take advantage of the, the height? Even Hauser seemed to have some trouble getting his shot off. Yeah, I thought uh, uh, their big man, Moses Wright, was, um, uh, you know, his athleticism was on display um, around the rim. And he, he, he showed a good knack for being able to block the shot and guys driving in and he uh, erased many. So, no, I thought, I thought he did a great job, just a great individual defensive effort on his part, you know, kind of forced some things as well, which, uh, which always helps out a defense. And then there were some opportunities where, you know, uh, like you saw late in the game, I think he Clark who struggled um, obviously much of that game, you know, he had a point blank layup. He finally got by Alvarado who was in foul trouble and, and had a, point blank layup and, and missed that. So um, there were a combination of things, but no, I think, you know, I think uh, Wright did a really good job, but, you know, UVA just, you know, they made the plays that they had to make when they had to make them. And I thought it was, you know, I was, I was impressed by Georgia tech. I think, you know, they're, they're going to need like Alvarado and, and, and those guys to play at a high level, obviously to, to be competitive with the top teams in the ACC, but they were really aggressive and they took it to UVA. So I think that was a, a really good uh, dogfight for UVA to be in and uh, to be able to pull it out was, was pretty impressive. And then of course, you know, Sam Hauser obviously was a huge spark in that, um, you know, Casey Morsell hit some big shots and, you know, his on ball defense and uh, Chris mentioned, touched on it. And then Tony Bennett touched on it, his on ball defense and Reese Beekman's and then Kihei Clark, if you watch those final minutes, I was really impressed with how he really stepped up to the challenge and in, in terms of shutting, uh, shutting his man down and Alvarado down defensively with uh, the on-ball defense. And then, of course, Jay Huff uh, with his his height and his length, blocking shots and things like that, really making it difficult. But uh, Wright was exceptional around the basket in terms of racing uh, any potential UVA um, layups. And then, you know, but, you know, fortunately, uh, Sam Hauser got it going uh, big time from three and really, I think, opened things up as well. To me, that was uh... – one of the more interesting parts, you mentioned the height advantage, Jeff. And then Chris, you just mentioned Sam Hauser stepping up. Virginia originally when Alvarado was guarding Hauser was trying to get him established in the mid post where he's been really, really good. Right. But Alvarado was bothering him uh, quick hands or uh, just enough physicality to kind of throw him off. And Hauser was not able to take advantage of that matchup there for a while. And so when you're watching that as a fan or you know, or as a coach or whatever, you're thinking, well, we need to attack the mismatch. We need to attack the mismatch. Well, I remember reading in Roy Williams' book, he said one time they couldn't stop somebody, so they just put their smallest guy on the big. And the other team started to try to force that matchup. And it got them out of rhythm, and that's what helped their defense settle in, right? So that's what was kind of going through my mind watching this. Is Virginia throwing the offense off by trying to attack this too much? Well, what they did is they went back to kind of what their kind of bread and butter is, what they're really good at, some sides motion, some three-man motion. But then Hauser took Alvarado outside and just shot over top of him. <laughs> you know what I mean? He took advantage of the height, the height difference in a different way. He didn't punish him in the post. He just stepped out and said, you're not going to be able to contest this. And then all of a sudden he was red hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I thought they did attack the mismatch, but only after – it didn't work the traditional way. <laughs> they kind of went a different route about it, and he was just shooting over top of him when he got going. Well, and the other thing, too, uh, the average fan might have noticed, uh, <laughs> if you believe in the, the power of the mojo, when uh, Alvarado made that three-pointer uh, with about 10 minutes left, gave Georgia Tech a nine-point lead at the time. He goes to midcourt, and he plays a little air guitar, right? 
maybe that's why I was thinking of the Gibson uh, <laughs> theme for the end of the show. But man, I, that that got me mad. So I'm like, okay, buddy, you you better play pretty hard here these last ten minutes. You still got you still got a lot of time here, even though you got a, a decent lead. And sure enough, out of that timeout, Hauser makes a three. Hauser makes another three, and he basically scored half of his point, half of his twenty two from there on out. He, he scored eleven. I think it was a nineteen eight run or something to close the game. So you guys- he air guitared in Atlanta last year too. Same oh, player, <laughs> right? Um, and so when that popped up, my son goes, "I remember that guy." Yeah, right. And so he was immediately it mad about in your it. Mind, right, right. He was immediately mad about it too. He's like, "Oh, why?" Uh, yeah. So you know, I don't know if there's any you know value to that or if it motivated the team or whatever. Mm-hmm. But certainly it caught Virginia fans' attention. Uh, my son and many on the message board were like, yeah. a little early for the air guitar, my man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, and Virginia went on a run, I think, in both games, last year's game and this year's game, after that you know, celebratory action. So huh. definitely an interesting kind of side note, whether it had anything to do with it or not. <laughs> that is amazing. You know, don't don't wake the beast, right? If, you, <laughs> if something's going good, just uh, try to keep it going and... Uh, they certainly awakened something there with uh, with UVA. So a two point win, and it was interesting. Kihei Clark scores one basket, ends up being the uh, the game winning basket there at the very end. What did you see from him? Maybe that was different there on that last uh, minute of the game, as to opposed to what he had been doing previous. It felt like Georgia Tech did a good job of not playing off of him at times, trying to make him finish some shots, and he just didn't do as well with it in that particular game, but. The Virginia players and coaches all were like, we have faith in in Kihei Clark. He's shown that he's going to step up in big moments for this program, you know, over the last two and a half years, three years. So when he made that shot, I don't think any of them were surprised. You know what I mean? Like he is someone who steps up in pretty bright moments so far during his Virginia career. So the shot itself was a tricky one, you know, kind of an in the paint short little pseudo jumper, pseudo layup, pseudo floater, <laughs> um, kind of fall away shot to win the game. So um, it wasn't an easy one. The, the layup that Chris mentioned earlier was much easier <laughs> when he blew by. He's by himself. That was one of the few times that Georgia Tech was not at the rim all night. But the game winner was a much tougher shot. But yeah, the Virginia players and coaches all were like, yeah, not surprised. He's that kind of competitor. And we've said it here on on the podcast too. He, he and Beekman you just look through their careers they just their record on the in the loss column is not a real big number it just isn't and obviously they're playing for a program where that's been true a lot lately as well not a big number in the loss column but uh even if you look at their high school days their aau days you know they won a lot of games (laughs) their teams won a lot of things so i think there's something you know to be said for that a little better shooting uh night for kihei two for six as opposed to one for ten the struggles with Georgia tech there, but a little better shooting against Syracuse, similar assist line where he had nine assists against Cuse and eight assists against tech. So I feel like, you know, we saw Kihei scoring what 19 points or something there for a couple of games, <laughs> the Gonzaga game, I think he had close to 20. Uh, and we know how that game turned out. So it does almost seem like if we can flip it and just keep an eye on that assist line. It, it doesn't necessarily, we don't need him to even score double figures necessarily when he's distributing, that seems to be when the whole offense is clicking on all cylinders. Uh, I've got some uh, three-point statistics too, guys. I know, you know, it, it's not all about the threes. Uh, certainly, as you can look back at 
uh, maybe the first couple of games of this calendar year, but it is kind of interesting. We, we've sort of figured out how to shoot threes all of a sudden <laughs> these last four games. It's just been incredible. So, and we've been holding the opponents to, uh, to not very good three point shooting. Uh, Georgia tech did shoot 60% from three, nine of 15 UVA was eight of 18 in that game, but that's been the outlier. The other three uh, of the last four, you know, we're up to 38.9% on three point shooting and listen to me saying we, like I'm uh, on the staff or something, but uh, you know, 12 of 24 in the Notre Dame game, only were six to 20 uh, against wake. And we allowed wake to, uh, to go 10 of 19 from three point range in that BC game at the beginning of the year, you know, UVA only shot four of 15. They were six of 21. Uh, so neither team shot particularly well, but um, when you're making 15 threes in a game, like they did, uh, well, 14, I guess, against Syracuse. That's tough. That's tough to beat. And uh, Cuse was kind of scoring a lot, you know, 80-some points a game, I think. And they only were 5 of 24. So live by the three, die by the three. I, I know there's more to it than that. So you guys can can go from there. Uh, Chris Horn, what did you see from the from beyond the arc? Well, I think I think Tony Bennett on his radio show – I think this was the time when Hauser was struggling from three, which wasn't, you know, super duper struggling, but uh, he said that, you know, he expects there'll be a game where he just goes off and hits bam, 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 just knocks him down. And I think we've seen that the next three games uh, following that radio show. So he may have been onto something and that's, that's been a huge key. And of course, you know, Trey Murphy has been great all season long and uh, Jay Huff has been really stepping up in terms of his confidence level with his, his three point uh, shot and his outside shooting um, ability. And then, you know, I think other guys who we've discussed on the show, uh, you know, more cells kind of starting to hit a few more here and there. Walter Tensai had the big game, um, of course, against Clemson. So, yeah, Virginia just got a lot of options uh, led by Hauser and Huff and Trey Murphy uh, from from beyond the arc. And then, yes, yeah, so I think, you know, certainly from uh, from Kihei's standpoint, what I liked about him against uh, Syracuse was how, you know, he was aggressive and attacking the zone. And I think sometimes he gets too aggressive and then that's when the turnovers start to appear. But uh, he was he was under control and making some really, uh, really special plays, really special passes. Um, I thought against the uh, Syracuse zone, I, I didn't think this, you know, this, this year's Syracuse zone is not like some that we've seen in the past. I think where they have a lot of really dynamic athletes and long guys that really, really bother you. So they, you know, on their end, I didn't, I thought they were kind of stagnant, honestly, um, against Virginia in that first half. And, and when they turn it on, it seems like they get energized when they do that press. I mean, they can do that press. Like <laughs> it's an amazing thing to watch when they do it because uh, they're so good at it but I think that kind of sparked them and said so they kind of started getting things going a little bit defensively in the second half but UVA kind of had an answer as well uh, you know Hauser a three or or Murphy a three you know UVA made the plays when they needed to make them you know to, to stave off any kind of run from from Syracuse so um, from Virginia's standpoint defensively uh, I wanted to you know point out like Trey Murphy the third I thought against Georgia Tech, I thought he struggled when they went right at him, uh, especially in that first half. I think Usher took advantage of, uh, of him defensively. And then, uh, but I thought, and then, you know, maybe a little bit of that first half against Syracuse as well. But I thought in the second half, I uh, went back and watched the uh, Syracuse game again. He really looked pretty good. I thought he 
he accepted the challenge defensively and stepped up and made several nice defensive plays in terms of on-ball defense um, and enforcing turnovers and making things difficult. So I definitely wanted to give him a shout-out. And in addition to his three-point shooting ability, you know, he, he's been able to improve defensively. And while he had some struggles, I think, against Georgia Tech in the first half against Syracuse, um, I liked how he, he stepped up in the second half against Syracuse and really uh, uh, made things difficult for them. You know what helps three-point shooting? When one dude makes 15 of them in three games. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Hauser, four or five, four or five, seven of 13 through those three games from three. So, you know, he's definitely kind of gotten into a groove um, from behind the, behind the arc, kind of, I guess, uh, law of averages <laughs> working, working back here. I mean, he's a plus 40% shooter in his career. He didn't forget how to shoot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just went through a little slump and on a small sample size, you know, that percentage will, will fluctuate. Then all of a sudden he's red hot. So against Syracuse, I, I can't remark how many times watching the game I went, whoa, that's really open. I mean, he was getting practice quality shots. Like no one, they got the tracking data in the NBA that tells you who the closest defender was. I don't know what the tracking data would say on some of them. <laughs> like that's how open they were. It was crazy. He was doing a great job of relocating, but then Virginia was collapsing the zone and just finding him in those spots. And so he's standing there taking basically practice shots as a fifth year senior, 40 plus percent shooter. And he made seven of them. <laughs> That's 21 points in a hurry. You know what I mean? Like that, um, that was one of the most striking things about the game is how open he was, particularly early. I think it was five threes in the first half. So, and then that kind of discombobulated things for later um, as well. You know, it started now Murphy's open. Now somebody else is open. Uh, and then Murphy makes four out of 10, which is also very good. Um, yeah, crazy, crazy. Uh, the way they, they really carved up that zone. It was, it was really kind of fun to watch. They were getting pretty much anything they wanted and Syracuse didn't look, I don't know. They just, usually it's the other way around. I think I wrote in the lead of the recap that when Syracuse's zones at its best, they cause offenses to be hesitant. You know what I mean? Like quite sure of what to do. It felt like the opposite. The zone looked frozen. Like, I, I don't know where to rotate. And so Virginia was just getting in any and every shot that it wanted for large chunks of that game. Yeah, that's rare for a Jim Beheim team. He's been a master of that zone for so many years. And his son's obviously on the team. My, my speculation is he'll retire once his son is done, but uh, we can only hope, I guess. I don't know. UVA fans may want him to stick around <laughs> with the success we've had in recent years. Although I don't know if you guys had the same flashbacks to 2016 that, uh, I started having there for, for just a minute and all those turnovers, it was like three or four possessions in a row there with uh, about halfway through the second half. It got a little dicey there. <laughs> Syracuse went to the press and, and got back into things for a minute. Yeah. So then I did a little research on that, that game, just to remind myself, cause I'm a glutton for punishment. It was like, no, why am I doing this? But you know, all of this guys, this, this run of 15 straight going back to last season, 15 straight ACC wins. My goodness. So I wanted to mention that for sure. Hey, the ones at the end of last year were all like three points or less. These are a little easier on fans' blood blood pressure, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, we're you know, we saw a couple of games really where all 17 guys or whatever, we were wondering, you know, okay, it was going to be a 10-man rotation, eight, nine, what, how many guys are going to get some bench time? Pretty much this last week or two, it's really been more sell you know, seven minutes, uh, seven points, 
against Syracuse. I think he had nine against Georgia Tech. So he's providing, you know, some good minutes off the bench, but really not a whole lot of contributions uh, from the other guys. And, and we've been playing this well. Do you think that's a, a good sign for the next, you know, period of the season or do you think we're going to start, are we relying, is this a little bit of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but it, you know, we've just been enjoying the spoils of the the starting five here <laughs> these last four or five games. Yeah. I mean, I think they, uh, uh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good thing. The, uh, the back spasms from Hauser definitely worried me a little hearing that a little bit. Um, but man, he can, uh, he could shoot pretty well with back spasms. That's for sure. Um, with his performance coming out there, but um, no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think you would see maybe instead of Kafaro, you'd probably see Shedrick more if he wasn't um, on the sidelines, but no, I mean, I think the, you know, I think they were just trying to get some chemistry and just, you know, kind of a solid kind of like a foundation group that they can rely on, which is needed uh, to win. Now, I think there's definitely still improvement to go. I think you'll see, you know, there's, there. I mean, obviously the offense has been phenomenal, but, you know, defensively there's still some stretches here where it's a little shaky. And, you know, I think I think uh, Casey Morsell is still some, you know, searching for the consistency that we're looking for. But, yeah, like Kafaro, what he's been able to do, he's come out. I thought he's he's he's, he's brought like a, another big presence off the bench. Uh, so he provides that kind of defensive post presence. You know, he's not the the shot blocker that Jay Huff is, but he's he's a big guy in the middle and he's a good rebounder and he, he's physical. So he uh, on the offensive end, he's able to open up some things. I think with through screens and things like that. So yeah, no, I think I, I like the rotation. You know, obviously some of the guys, you know, like Justin McCoy was uh, kind of a high, you know, high energy guy, and um, you know, I think he's. Uh, worked hard, but he's kind of unfortunately the odd, odd man out right now. I think it seems like Bennett just wants kind of maybe a bigger presence, but you never know. Again, I mean, I think like like Bennett says, these guys just have to be ready to go, and we'll see what happens as the season goes on. But you know, it's just going to this. I think this group is going to be the the core group that you know UVA. How far UVA goes is going to really depend on this group, and I mean, it's just it's just hard. I think just to go ten deep every game because it's just hard to find that consistency that you need. Well, Beekman and Murphy, yeah, nice to see them both in double figures against Syracuse. Jay Huff, career high 21 points. Hard to believe he's never scored 20 before, as efficient as he has been. And he kind of joked in the uh, post-game interview, I don't know if you guys heard that, but uh, I guess Kafaro was waiting to come in there at the very end, and he had the two free throws to get him to 20 and 21. And he was, I guess even if he... If he had a little bit of pressure on himself, I guess he, he knew where he, he was on the stat line. But um, hey, Jay yeah. Huff has been phenomenal. Yeah, right. Like he's dominating the game at in stretches on the defensive end, and then he's been rock solid, consistent on the offensive end. Right. So Virginia's what six and zero, right? In ACC play, he's yep. got double figure scoring in all six, yep. and the last three games of the ACC schedule last year double-digit scoring. So that's nine straight double-digit scoring games in ACC play for Jay Huff. Doing it very efficiently, doing it inside and out, and really uh, influencing things on the other end. You know, he passed Travis Watson. He's now fifth all-time on the program's block shots list. Um, and he's going to have a chance to make a run at Mamadi at number two, um, depending on how many multi-block games he has. So far, he's had a bunch. <laughs> um, if he continues to have multi-block games, especially if it's like the five blocks against Georgia Tech, 
um, he's going to have a chance to to make a run all the way at Mamadi's number two. The fewer games this season might be kind of the deciding factor there. So he's been great. It's just been really fun to watch him influence the game in so many different ways, including as a passer here these last several games as well, where he's you know high post against uh, Syracuse's zone, making some plays back to the Clemson game on some of those backdoor feeds. Yeah, he's just he's been really good. And I think Virginia fans are excited to see it because he is such a likable player. Um, and such a personality on top of it, right? Making jokes about maybe I should miss it. So Kafaro doesn't get in the game, right? The <laughs> He's just a likable dude to pull for when he's on your team, you know? Yeah, and taking a charge, uh, which is pretty cool when the, the whole bench erupted and uh, and went to pick him up. But he's, he's – and I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Like, he's getting comfortable taking, like, the big shots and, the, like, being an important part of the offense. Like, he knows he's got to be – uh, an important guy on the offense and he's hitting big shots. Like at the end of the Georgia tech game, or, or excuse me, at the end of the first half of the Georgia tech uh, game, hitting the three to cut it to four, that was um, huge. Uh, which yeah. jo- Josh Pashner, if you saw his reaction, <laughs> slammed down his visor or something like that. At the, but I mean, his uh, face shield. I thought he he's going to break shot. it. <laughs> <laughs> and well, then later on in the Georgia tech game, he hits that little, you know, just catch and shoot kind of uh, inbounds play, which Coach Bennett cited. Um, and I believe that put UVA up by like three or something like that. So, I mean, you, you know, he's getting comfortable, you know, stepping up in key situations, which is going to be important, um, you know, when games get closer and when tournament time comes. So, it's, it's, no, it's definitely great to see. Great, great kid, great guy to, um, to root for. Um, and, yeah, just to see him kind of uh, – um, uh, step up in the way he's been stepping up is pretty cool. Uh, certainly pretty cool to watch. Well, with all those alley-oops, you know, uh, Huff, of course, gets a, a few each game, it seems, lately especially. And uh, man, Murphy had a great one along running along the baseline there. Uh, you may have to add that to the to the scoreboard along with – we may need to start <laughs> keeping track of those. doesn't matter with no fans in the stands, I guess. But, um you know, instead of just keeping track of the uh, shot clock violations, we can keep an alley oop counter going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Luke Neer and I were talking about Luke, Luke Neer and I were talking about it on the best seat in the house. Yeah, um, that's Luke's favorite play in all of sports. He says is the alley oop, and they're both really good at it. Huff is really good at catching it in all kinds yeah. of ways: one-handed, reverse, <laughs> like uh, traditional. I guess we'd say the, the two-handed straight on mm-hmm. dunk he can do that too but kihei has amazing like feel for where to put them it's not just you know putting it's it hard, toward hard the rim it's looks, always right. in the right spot to give huff the best chance at it like mm-hmm. he's just so the combination of the two is so much so much fun to watch like because it kind of appears out of nowhere sometimes <laughs> yeah plus i think it would kind of be fun just with the whole national narrative of you know it, everybody assuming that we still have this slow pace and we score in the sixties every game and it's boring. And it's like, Oh wait, they've got an alley-oop counter now at UVA. What's going on? <laughs> Maybe an eight, 80 point game counter three of the last four. Yeah. 80 plus Virginia's yeah. only lost one game in the Tony Bennett era when scoring 80, they're like 35 and one or something like that. So yeah. Lazy reporting this year. Uh, you know, as far as the slowdown, I saw yeah. in one of the game previews. You know, UVA is going to hold the ball. You know, it's just kind of like uh, you know what you haven't watched the team this year. Clearly, Huff must. If there's a stat for reverse alley oop dunks, he must. He's got to have the record. I've never seen anybody have as more uh, <laughs> as many <laughs> reverse dunks. But you know, he's you know, he's good. But yeah, I mean. 
K.A. Clark's pass, the one against Georgia Tech where, uh, yeah, he gets right around uh, there. He, he goes left and then, you know, hits uh, hits Huff for the beautiful pass and the one you mentioned, Jeff, to, to Murphy. Those are just perfect pass. I mean, nothing nothing else to say. It's perfect. I mean, uh, perfect pass. Well, and again, Chris Wright, you can probably speak to this as a coach, like, it just seems from a fan's perspective, like, why don't we run that play every time? You know, I mean, how, is there a sweet spot of how, how many times you can do that? I mean, a defense, a defense is going to figure that out, obviously, as the game goes on. But, man, if it's working and you got the size advantage like we did against Tech especially, is there a method to running that maybe a little more frequently than, uh, than we've seen? It's not like really a specific play. This is not like back screening Justin Anderson on the wing for an alley-oop. This is Kihei having to get a, an advantage on his man, get into the, the lane area or the general territory of the lane, and Huff's man separating from Huff himself, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean come all the way and try to block Kihei because that some, sometimes they get caught in no man's land. But if they leave Huff at all, just separate where he can right. gather and jump, that's all it takes because Kihei mm-hmm. just <laughs> kind of flips it up there super quick. So it's not really a play. It requires like a feel from Kihei to be able to beat his man. And then when do you throw it? Because if you throw it late, it gets deflected or maybe Huff is not open, but the help defender is rotated. If you throw it too early, uh, his defender hasn't separated yet. That's what I mean. Like Kihei is really good at that. Like, you know, I know fans have their ups and downs with, with Kihei Clark, you know, when he's struggling shooting in the Georgia Tech game or whatever, but that specific skill, he is really, really good at it. Yeah. Is there a signal maybe Jay Huff gives him like a, a, a nod or a wink or an eyebrow? Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> the signal is that he's seven foot one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we'll uh, preview the Hokies matchup coming up next here on the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Saber.com. And here we go with the second segment on the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn from the Saber as uh, the big matchup comes your way on Saturday night. We've been waiting a while for this one. It's the Hokies and the Who's. You know, now we have Virginia back in the top 10 uh, as they were highly regarded at the beginning of the year in those preseason rankings. Virginia Tech was not regarded at all. Uh, Expect to finish towards the bottom of the ACC standings. They ended up making their way to, I think, number 15 at one point. But here of late, uh, they lost by 18 to the same Syracuse team that didn't give the Who's too much trouble. And so here we go. (laughs) Saturday night, 6 p.m. game, and UVA back in that uh, top 10 nationally. So sounds like one of the key players for Tech has been suspended from the team. And uh, what else can you guys say about uh, this matchup coming up this weekend? Chris Thorne, you want to go first? Yeah, I think, well, I think one, the uh, potentially biggest key is Tyrese Radford. And if he's uh, going to, he's indefinitely suspended as of now. So uh, we'll see if he's reinstated, as somebody mentioned, uh, if, <laughs> with Duke and Grayson Allen's indefinite suspension, which was pretty brief, but we'll see what happens with Radford. I would expect he probably won't be back um, uh, for the Virginia game, but we'll see. He's, uh, you know, Coach Bennett mentioned this Tech team is 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 has impressed him with his its grittiness and toughness, 
And uh, I think he's kind of one of the, uh, he, or if not the kind of leader of that. I think uh, he, he, he leads the team in minutes, leads the Hokies in minutes. He's second in points, second in assists. Uh, so that to me was his rebounding ability. He's got two games, um, one against Villanova, one against Duke, where he had double-digit rebounds. Uh, from the guard position, which is kind of interesting. Um, and he's averaging 6.3 rebounds per game. So he's kind of, to me, like he does a lot of things very well for the team. Uh, so he's kind of like a glue guy, but more than a glue guy because he can put up some points. Um, so with, without him, that's definitely a big loss for Virginia Tech. But, uh, you know, they have they have, they have some other guys who, um, you know, who can get going. And, you know, so, you know, Virginia – which I think Virginia is in a good groove right now in terms of focus. They seem to be have that hard hat, hard working mentality uh, in practice, and you know they they don't seem to be getting too high with the wins and things like that. They they're just uh, focused on improving, which I think is a great mentality, obviously for Virginia and typical of what we've seen um, over the Tony Bennett um, era for sure. Um, but you know if they didn't have the focus, you know, I think Tech does have some guys who can beat you. You know, you start inside with um, Aluma, number 22. He's he's the team leader in points uh, with 13.9 points per game. Um, he's gone to the line 76 times this year, so that stood out to me. So he's a guy who, you know, uh, you know may, they may try to go at Jay Huff, try to get him in some foul trouble early. But he's a guy who could score on the block. He's, you know, occasionally stepped out uh, and been able to shoot uh, the three. Not super great with that, but he's – He's shown an ability at least to knock it down, uh, but he's also very aggressive defensively with 18 blocks. So he's uh, he kind of spearheads that defense uh, that you know could give uh, could give the Hoos some trouble, but probably less so with Radford not in in the lineup. And then you know on the perimeter they have some guys like uh, um, Allen, who's number four, uh, Jalen Cohn off the bench, uh, number 15, Hunter Couture. Uh, those guys can all um, hit threes uh, for sure. Kator is hitting 45% of his threes this year. Yeah, they definitely have some guys who can still who can still beat you. Um, but you know, I think UVA, the way they're playing and their mentality, I think UVA's. You know, I'm pretty confident in UVA's chances going in, especially if Rafford's not available to play. Tech looking at them is interesting. So they're only shooting 34.2% as a team from three-point range. You know, Virginia in, in a lot of ways forces you to shoot that if they can, Virginia tech is pretty good at getting to the free throw line, right around 20% of their points come from free throws. They're 75th in the country in free throw attempts per field goal attempts. You know, how often do you get to the line basically is what that stat is. So they're, they're in the top 100 in, in the stats for that, but they don't, you know, it seems pretty balanced Four guys in double figure scoring. They're, they don't have a dominant score. They do try to spread it. Maybe it's not as, three-point happy as it feels like they were last year, um, but they are a fairly high three-point volume team, so they're going to try to space it. So you get kind of interested in certain matchups. You have to start with Jay Huff. We were talking about him in the last segment. The last time he did not score in double figures in an ACC game was Virginia Tech last year, and it's because he only played 13 minutes. He's going to be out there this time. What does it look like? How does he defend? How is he able to deal with that? In past years, you had other options. You had Diakite and Key and others, and you could just match down. You're not going to gain anything defensively by matching down with McCoy or Hauser and Murphy, although maybe you could get away for that for a brief period of time. So I think Huff is going to play minutes in this one, unlike the last time they played Virginia Tech. The question for me is, what does that look like? Aluma, not a great three-point shooter, although he can do it some. 
he's only a 29% shooter from three. So he's not going to be able to pull Huff as far away from the rim as a great shooter would. So that matchup to me is interesting. I think that Virginia could have some success on the other end as well. You know, Virginia tech, good defensive team. I wouldn't say elite defensive team. They're, they're good and they really get after you and they're physical and they're a well-coached team. Uh, Mike Young is doing a good job of kind of giving them a chance right every night, but you know, Jim Beheim and his post-game thing, somebody asked him, was this a step back losing to Virginia? And remember they had just blown Virginia tech out. And he was like, no, Virginia is better than anybody we've played recently by a mile. Now Beheim is a curmudgeon, but he's not really much of a liar. <laughs> right. So at least from his view, in terms of how they matched up with his team, he thinks Virginia is clearly ahead of other teams they've played lately. And, and, you know, that included Pittsburgh and Virginia Tech. And I think Notre Dame was one of the other, other recent ones. What does that all mean though? Right. Can Huff stay on the floor? Can he match up the way he needs to? Can they keep the one real dangerous three-point shooter, uh, Hunter Couture from getting hot, right? Can Virginia set the tone early? I think that's important against teams like Tech too. If they get going, they are flammable, meaning they can get hot regardless of what their overall percentages say. So I think Virginia out of the gates needs to be good as well. Uh, to kind of set the tone defensively in this game versus the opposite, the opposite happened against the other tech where it took 30 minutes for the defense to show up. Um, I think you can play with fire with teams like Virginia tech. If you do that. Well, no Luma, it looks like he really struggled against that zone of Syracuse one for 10 from the field, only four rebounds, two points, and he's their leading scorer and rebounder. So tough game for him as uh, they lost by 18 to Cuse, but it looks like um, maybe a little bit more height on the bench, but Similar as far as if you just look at the height of their starting five to what Georgia Tech brought to uh, to JPJ. So hopefully uh, UVA can exploit the uh, the height and the length. I mean, they pretty much got that on everybody, don't they, <laughs> Chris Horn? I mean, it's it's an advantage that's been nice this year having these guys play in Tony's system with that much more, uh, you know, uh, of an advantage. Yeah, well, I think with uh, with UVA, I guess I guess Virginia Tech. I think Chris uh, mentioned earlier about um, in terms of against Georgia Tech finishing at the basket um, and Aluma again, eighteen block shots this season, and he's had some highlight reel ones. He's pretty he's pretty aggressive and he's pretty good shot blocker. So, uh, but then you have you know if he's on Jay Huff um, or even Sam Hauser, obviously you got to watch out for the three pointers for the, from those guys. So, you know, I, I would expect Virginia is going to have opportunities to finish at the basket, you know, so hopefully, you know, I think you know, Kihei Clark, it's going to be important for him to, um, I think he'll, I think UVA may count on him a little bit more offensively in this game uh, points from a point standpoint. And, uh, I think he'll have some chances at the basket and it'll be important for him not to force anything and, and commit turnovers, uh, as Chris mentioned, not to, you don't want to start off sloppy and give, uh, you know, Virginia tech, um, some momentum. And then if they get hot, it could, it could, uh, it could put you in trouble, but, uh, but no, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, Virginia is going to have, you know, on paper, certainly it seems like Virginia has got uh, pretty significant advantages. Um, but again, I think it's just a matter of being consistent and, you know, not turning the ball over and, uh, is going to be, is going to be pretty key and, and finishing at the basket. So I think they will have chances and just have to have to convert. And again, don't turn the ball over. Well, and Chris Wright too, like you're saying, uh, new coach, new culture there. And you can tell, I mean, they're, they're playing, not the buzzes, buzz Williams teams didn't play hard, but you know, that going into Louisville only losing by two, but now Louisville's back in the top 25 
They did beat Notre Dame pretty handily by 14. They beat Duke by seven at home. Then they went on the road, played uh, Wake Forest tough and beat them by four. It's never an easy place to play at Wake, but uh, you know, then they turn around and kind of laid an egg against Syracuse, but uh, they stayed in the, the top 25, which is a credit to the, you know, what the rest of their season, you know, usually a loss like that will knock you out, but uh, they're still ranked 20th and they've had a, a pretty solid season up to this point. So uh, five and two in conference, 11 and three overall. What have you seen from the the Hokies that kind of scares you a little bit going into this matchup that maybe doesn't appear in the, in the stats? Every time Virginia plays there, it's a close game. <laughs> that would be my answer, right? Like, yeah. no matter how good Virginia is, no matter who's coaching Virginia Tech, no matter, how, you know, what their stats say any given year, even last year, if you look at the two results, Virginia ran them out of the gym at John Paul Jones Arena, needed a Kihei Clark game-winning three to win down there. So was it there that the London Parenta shot froze on the fl- flange at the back of the rim too, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's just something about playing down there. The the Hokies give Virginia their best shot in that building. So it is different, right? Not as many people in the building. It's a totally different atmosphere, et cetera. So I don't know if all of that translates. But, yeah, this is not a place where Virginia just rolls in and, and dominates their rival, right? This is not that type of venue. So we'll see what this year plays into that. But that's the first thing that, that gets my attention is every time Virginia goes there, it feels like they're pulling rabbits out of their hat late sometimes to win some of these games, right? Like Justin Anderson one year hit a couple of big threes. Uh, Kihei Clark's last year. There have been other examples of that as well, where Virginia just has to do something late to win the game in Blacksburg. So my gut is this may have that kind of vibe to it. Especially, you know, when there's such a key guy like that who – probably won't play maybe we'll play you kind of leading into it like well how do you prepare for this like <laughs> what guy off the bench is going to be that x factor right chris horn <laughs> yeah i mean well if he's not playing i definitely feel a lot better about virginia's chances because he's such a i think big part of their team for sure but yeah i mean that's always a situation where you're never uh if you're not sure if a guy's going to play but you know i think like uh like tony bennett said one uh, you know i thought it was interesting on his show that he you know, of course, he he does scout the other team, obviously, and, and game plans for them within his own system. But his main focus is always his team and preparing his team and sharpening uh, Virginia skills and, and what they're doing. So, again, as I mentioned, I think Virginia's got the right mentality going on. But, it, you know, it, there are some intriguing uh, matchups for sure. You know, Allen, uh, I believe, didn't play very well last year against Virginia, but he's, he's averaging double figures this year. Hunter Couture, 45% three-point shooter, guy who can get hot. Jalen Cohn is another guy who's a 35% three-point shooter who can also get hot. So I, I think that number is not quite as reflective of how potent a three-point shooter he can be. And again, if um, you know if their center comes out and really takes it at Huff and gets Huff in early foul trouble, you know, it kind of goes back. You know, we haven't seen you know if you have to go to Kafaro early, what, what's that going to look like? Um, if UVA has to go kind of small, you know, that may, may kind of, uh, you know, Virginia has been able to go with what Clark, Morsell, Beekman, and then Hauser and Huff mainly. They could go Murphy um, as well. But, you know, I think that could, if, if you have to substitute Murphy to play down low, I think that could hurt UVA potentially on the boards. So that could be something to watch. So that's going to, for me, you know, the Huff, Kive uh, matchup is going to be the one one to watch, uh, one I'm interested in watching and seeing who, uh, win, who wins out on that one. You may see McCoy as the stub instead of Kafaro. 
um, in this game. It's a slightly different matchup type of situation. So Kafaro has been yeah. the, the extra big while Shedrick is out lately. So it could shift back to McCoy in this matchup uh, potentially. We'll see. I don't know that for sure, but um, that's one other kind of thing to watch. Huff's not going to play 40. Who plays those other 10? Do, do you know much about this 6'9 freshman from the Netherlands? That uh, He's only averaging 3.2 points on the year, but last couple games he's really come off the bench strong for the Hokies. That seems like an X-factor kind of guy that could we could have some problems with. Yeah, I mean, I think they have some front court – intriguing front court options um kid out uh, graduate transfer out of delaware i believe uh, mutz is his name uh pretty good rebounder six seven kind of a wide body aluma is you know again he's six nine so that that, that is going to be interesting i would say kafara is probably more likely to come off the bench just to match up with him give him some problems given his offensive um, abilities down low because i don't think mccoy has quite the uh uh, you know, the height and, and the defensive prowess to really give him a lot of a lot of trouble um, from that aspect. But, yeah, so Tech does have some intriguing front court options, which, again, could be interesting, especially if Jay Huff gets into foul trouble or something like that happens. So, um, you know, that's, that, that's all, definitely going to be one, something to watch um, from that standpoint. I think UVA coming in is going to have the edge as far as, um, you know, from the perimeter. Uh, I think they uh, uh, this is a decent matchup for Virginia as far as the guards and things like that. Well, and around the uh, ACC guys, any other intriguing uh, sentiments? I think this is the first time Duke has been five and five to start the year since Jay Billis was playing <laughs> in the early '80s. Back when he had hair, he was saying on the broadcast. So, hmm, trouble in uh, uh, in Durham. Yeah, at, the, uh, the thing that jumps out is it's Virginia and Florida State. And I yeah. guess Louisville trying to stay in the conversation. Uh, Pitt was there, Tech, Virginia Tech was there, but now they both have have a loss here recently. So it'll be interesting to see do Virginia and Florida State fully separate now that they both have uh, a lead in the standings, uh, or do other teams get into the conversation? Particularly as Virginia goes back on the road, they've been at home for these last several games. So that's the biggest thing I'm looking at from the ACC. Obviously, Duke and Carolina falling out of the rankings along with Kentucky uh, for the first time in like. I guess ever, <laughs> not ever, but pretty close to it. A really long time. <laughs> Carolina though is hot. They're, they've got their act together. Yeah. They've won a bunch here lately. So they could potentially, I guess, force themselves back up toward the, the top of the standings. But yeah, that's the main thing that jumps out so far with me is it's Virginia and Florida state establishing themselves. And they were of course the two uh, top two seeds in the, in the tournament when it got canceled last uh, March. So interesting to watch uh, with some more challenges ahead because Virginia has been very good so far. You know, speaking of good front courts, UNC's got a good one with Garrison Brooks and Armando Baycoat and uh, Dayron Sharp, who's a, a, a talented true freshman. Uh, so they have definitely a front court that uh, to, to that would give UVA uh, fits. You know, I mean, all, Duke, UNC, of course, they have talent. You know, so it could just be a matter of if they can just put it together. I say, think UNC is trending certainly in the right direction. Um, I did watch the Louisville Duke game, you know, Louisville, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Carly Jones, a kid from who transferred from Radford looked good. Uh, so he's, he's definitely, uh, it seems to have taken the, the role as the leader of that team. And with him and David Johnson, that's a pretty formidable backcourt. However, I think, you know, I think, I just don't, I don't know what their ceiling is. I guess I should say, I think they're a, a solid team, but I think it's a team that UVA could uh, certainly handle. And then, you know, Duke, you know, they're trying to, you know, kind of do the Kentucky to kind of implement young guys, really, uh, really, you know, some talented guys, but and try to get some 
chemistry going there and they just can't seem to find you know what they're looking for uh to be able to pull out and win games so they're but again they have talent I don't think it's a question of talent. So if they can get, get it together, then uh, they're they're always going to be a dangerous team. But yeah, UNC to me is looking good. And then as Chris mentioned, Florida State, they seem like just different cast of characters, but same team, length, uh, height, good defense, athletic, same same Florida State team. And uh, um, yeah, they're going to be tough to deal with too. Not non ACC note, Virginia fans looking forward to something else on Saturday. They think that, that one of the recruiting targets might jump on board, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Uh, Isaac McNeely out of West Virginia uh, plays for the Polka High School Dots. So the Polka Dot. Yeah, the so, Polka Dots. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah the Polka <laughs> That is awesome. So, yeah, he's a um, four-star, you know, consensus four-star, top 75 in the nation uh, in terms of juniors. Uh, prospect um yeah he's going to make his announcement on saturday around i believe two o'clock is the time so big day for uva on several fronts and seems like uva is tracking as the favorite which is not a surprise he's 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 visited he visited uva twice last season including for the uh, season finale against louisville uh last year as well as the columbia game earlier in the year and just in you know, haven't uh, spoken with him directly, but in every interview that I've read, he's talked about how great a fit UVA is. So it's definitely doesn't seem to be a su- surprise. And I think he's, you know, six four. You know, have you've seen highlights? Chris's favorite uh, to, to to judge off of highlights, but uh, <laughs> so I haven't seen him in person. But the things that kind of jump out to me, you know, six four, one eighty five. He's got some pop, kind of like Kyle Guy, um, but he's a little bit taller than Kyle Guy as far as athletic pop. Like he can get up and dunk, kind of surprise you a little bit. I think. Uh, so he's got some burst athletically, I think. Uh, and he's also known for being a pretty good shooter, 45% three-point shooter, um, averaging 22 points a game uh, last season. So he's a guy who can who can shoot it, and he's got some, uh, again, good athletic pop to him and, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, likes to play defense and offense. So that's always a good thing for UVA. But it seems like UVA is tracking in the right direction, so it could be good news on several fronts if they can – beat the Hokies and, and uh, reel in the first commitment of 2022. Yeah, and him and that, that kid here locally in, in Charlottesville, it's climbing up all those uh, ranking boards. They, mm-hmm. It would be quite a tandem there if they could get both of those guys. But, uh, you know, Chris Wright, you've got your finger on the pulse a little bit of the, uh, the high school scene around the state. Are, are more teams – I mean, this, this is a program in West Virginia, obviously, but – you see teams that are starting to emulate like more of the pack line and some of these Tony Bennett <laughs> principles on a high school level. seems like I mean, they really bought into the whole deal. Yeah. Gap gap defenses is common. It's not like an uncommon thing Okay, um, where you are seeing it. I think a fair amount more is on the college level, right? There are a lot of teams that play pack line principles, not pack line specifically, but principles um, all around the country, right? Louisville, a little bit of it, uh, Arizona, uh, Indiana. I mean, there are different variations of it all over the place. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's a direct Virginia influence because Virginia has been so good these last six to seven years. But, you know, as the three point shooters at different positions increase, you back the line up last year, there's kind of a chess match going on there. Can what leads to those threes? Is it penetration and kickouts? Is it just shooters being out there? Right. So there's a, a, a tug of war going on around that. Like, how do you keep guys out of the paint? but also don't give up three-point shooting because it seems like more and more guys on the floor positionally can can hit the three. Well, I call that uh, 
stretching of the floor and everybody thinks they're Steph Curry now. So that's the, uh, that's the challenge for the back line defensive minds, I guess, to get way out to those guys that want to shoot. What is Trey that? Uh, territory. The real slim shady. There's only one real, there's only one Steph Curry. Right. <laughs> right, right. There's only one Dame, Dame Lillard. <laughs> mm. Yes. It's not they Dame, make it Dame time. Easy, but <laughs> anyway, so uh, shout out by the way, while we're talking, Pros, um, DeAndre Hunter and Malcolm Brogdon, back-to-back nights in the NBA. Both of those guys with career highs, over 30 points. Pretty awesome to see. Joe Harris, of course, playing with three of the all-time greats on the same team now with, with Brooklyn. So the saga continues there. And we will continue next with talk of the defensive line for the who's on the football field. That's next year on the Saber.com podcast. And we're back on the Saber.com podcast Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn. And uh, let's talk football before we talk Gibson guitars. That'll be our uh, turning the table segment next, but we've been kind of going position group by position group here the last few episodes uh, as the football season in the books, obviously, but looking ahead to uh, next year and the defensive line prospects. Uh, Chris Wright, you want to take that one first? Yeah, it's interesting because they're getting an unexpected kind of recruiting class, but on the, on the top end, Mandy Alonzo is back and, and Adiba Tariwa both back. And that's two experienced guys. You did not anticipate pre COVID. Well, one, Atariwa even being on the roster pre COVID and then certainly not getting them for two years and then Alonzo an extra year. So that kind of adds some, some intrigue to the mix as does the potential return of Aaron Famui who opted out this year. So, you potentially could have a lot of kind of experienced guys in the mix with other youngsters coming up. Obviously, Jameer Carter played a lot this year. Um, Virginia did have to fill in the gap of Jawan Briggs, who transferred out. But, you know, Nusi Milani, uh, Agunle, I never can say his name, uh, <laughs> both guys that kind of up and comers alongside Jameer Carter. So you've got this interesting blend of unexpected experience, unexpected recruiting class, so to speak, uh, with returning seniors. It was interesting, I think, that those were part of the guys coming back. I think that tells you a little bit that they want to ease those younger guys in still, kind of ease them through a, a off-season year that was lost last year. You know, it, it kind of like buys you some time. You think they invite everybody back or not every senior opted to come back, but at that position specifically, it's going to allow guys to grow up and get training Uh, strength training which could be important for the long-term health of this position that was well that was super uh that that was really good news for UVA as far as having Alonzo and Atariwa who who uh I thought showed showed pretty well in uh in his first season at UVA so he's going to have the season of experience and he's kind of a feisty feisty type guy on the on the defensive line and then you know you have Mandy Alonzo a guy who can play multiple positions on the defensive line who obviously knows the system in and out who's been very consistent in terms of production so he's reliable for sure and he's and he's a pretty good playmaker uh and then if Famui can come back and build on what he did in 2019 when he had four sacks and really took a big leap forward from his freshman year to his sophomore year um then yeah UVA's got a really you know really good starting good looking starting lineup right there and let, of course you can also shift in uh, as Chris mentioned Jameer Carter uh who's that classic nose kind of six two uh, 310 pounds, uh, nose tackle that, uh, that you want to have, I think in the three, four, 
um, uh, defense. And, yeah, I think it is telling to have those guys coming back because I think we saw some promising guys, right, this year, like Nusi Milani um, as a true freshman was showing some things. They were using him pretty well until he got hurt for the last couple of games of the year. Um, Sue Agun <laughs> it is kind of a challenge to say, but he's a he's a, a very uh, gifted kid. And you know, there was talk you know about him playing a bigger role as the season went on. I don't think he ever quite got to that role, so maybe he quite uh, wasn't quite ready. Um, but Ben Smiley the third is a is a was a redshirt freshman this past season, and he was able to uh, see the field. You know, he was hampered by injuries, but he's he's kind of the type of player that Coach Mendenhall said that they're looking to attract now on the defensive end or defensive line, which is a little bit taller, like 6'4", 6'5", uh, 265 pounds. And he got in against Virginia Tech, and I did notice, notice him uh, just in terms of his size and his ability to move. Uh, you know, it's definitely different from what UVA's, I think, had um, in the first uh, first five years under Coach Mendenhall. So you can kind of see the shift, I think, in terms of the direction they're trying to go uh, on the defensive line as far as, like, bigger guys. You know, Smiley the third again, 6'4". Milani is 6'6". Agunloye, 6'6". And the recruiting class they have coming in, three six five defensive linemen. And then the one six three guy, Bryce Carter, who is, uh, you know, the top most highly rated recruit in the class. Uh, really dynamic uh, potential at uh, defensive end. So um, definitely a lot of excitement coming in. You know, if, if Jawan Briggs could have stuck around, that would have been huge because I think that would have made for a really exciting looking defensive uh, defensive line with the guys coming back. So it's, it's it's a shame to see him go on several fronts, but still I think the future is bright. I think they have some good looking young athletes. Again, when the question is going to be when when are they going to be ready? And I think uh, you have four solid guys that we've discussed right now which uh, makes you feel pretty good. That's assuming uh, Famui comes back. But, uh, you know, I think we're just going to see when those younger guys are going to be ready to contribute at a consistent high level um, moving forward. And it'll be interesting to see what the defensive line looks like with those bigger, more athletic guys and what the staff tries to use, uh, how the staff tries to utilize those guys. Jordan Redmond, one name we didn't mention in there that is a little different than those guys. He's, Started at nose tackle as a true freshman and then kind of fell out of the rotation, got a red shirt year. And then this year played toward the end of the year after Juwan Briggs left. He basically gets a free year out of this too. So that's another year of potential development for him if he wants to stick around. You know what I mean? So he could be a factor because he did play mm-hmm. fairly solidly down the stretch. The, the catch here though is Virginia sometimes plays two, four, five, right? Where they only have two defensive linemen. Uh, and so then you start getting outside linebackers as stand-up defensive ends, essentially, when they're running a 2-4-5. So Snowden and uh, Noah Taylor, as examples, were really good at that. You know, so how do the outside linebackers play into this as well, including the, as of yet, still unannounced (laughs) transfer, but um, I think Chico said outside linebacker. But is he, after being a defensive lineman at Georgia Tech, is he a a stand-up option in a 2-4-5 that's kind of a defensive end? You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. lots of... um, interesting things to watch as they get more athletic guys up front does that mean less two four five because you're kind of getting the same thing from these new incoming recruits and their mold is similar to to what you would get anyway by going two four five so mm-hmm. it's interesting to see what they're building on the defensive line for the year for the out years for, for the years to come so what kind of grade overall would you give the uh the defensive line from this past year 
thought they were solid. Not as many habit plays, tackles for loss, sacks from the defensive line position. You know, I thought Carter and Briggs were were solid until Briggs left. I thought Carter was solid as a true freshman. Not as steady, not as high a grader as Eli Hamback was, and that, that's essentially the spot they were filling into because Alonzo and the other guys around them were the guys also around Hamback. So solid, but not top grader on the team. I think Eli Hamback was the the top graded pro football focused guy his senior year on the defense as a whole, <laughs> right? So they weren't at that level in terms of solidly doing your job to a T almost <laughs> like Hamback was doing. But I thought that the line had a good year but not a great year in terms of causing havoc or or tackles for loss or things like that. Yeah. I feel like that's been kind of a consistent theme with the Virginia defensive line. Like they're solid, like they're not like dynamic necessarily, but uh, they're pretty solid. You know, it was a shame, you know, I thought Richard Burney had a lot of potential if he could have, you know, obviously um, illness affected his career, but um, he seemed to be, uh, you know, a pretty good playmaker when he was in there. I think he had two sacks this year in five games, you know, Briggs had three sacks in seven games. So it seemed like he was kind of taking that next step before he decided to leave. So, yeah, well, I mean, like Chris was saying, I'm excited to see. I think this, you know, what I do uh, like about this defensive staff is they seem to be uh, very creative. So I'm, I'm uh, interested to see what direction they envision the defense defensive line going uh, with kind of the different side body types and uh, different athletic skill sets that they're going to be bringing in. And I think they'd, have definitely succeeded uh, as far as bringing those guys in. But, you know, as I, th- I would say looking forward towards next year, I think, you, you know, you start with guys like, again, Famui, Alonzo, Atariwa. I think those are solid, what, like, you know, B, solid, solid guys. I don't think they're, I think they're going to play, do what they're supposed to do, uh, I would say. And, uh, uh, but as far as having, you know, dynamic guys who are really making consistent plays in the backfield and things like that. I think you definitely have some very athletic, intriguing guys on the roster, and we'll see if uh, just when those guys develop. The ever-evolving state of college football, right? These guys, quarterbacks just get their – the ball out of their hands so fast, you can't even hardly put a pass rush on anybody anymore. So the height becomes that much more uh, Mm -hmm. important blocking the the passes in the the passing lane. So we shall see, and – yeah, shout out to Juan Thornhill, making it and actually being able to play in the Super Bowl this time. His team made it. He started basically all year for the Chiefs last year too, but got hurt there late in the season and missed the playoff run. But uh, man, another great year for him and uh, pretty good deal <laughs> getting to the Super Bowl <laughs> your first couple of years in the league, right? Yeah, did y'all see the the? There was a great clip of him driving off in, from his neighborhood. They had the neighborhood like lined up cheering him on as oh, he went nice. to, I guess the team hotel or whatever the night before oh, uh, which was pretty out, cool yeah. and then yeah he's he's stepping I mean obviously I think he was impacted by the ACL injury earlier in the year and they've said that but he seems to be really coming around at the right time so who knows maybe he could be the next like star defensive back MVP type deal you nice. never know because he he made a phenomenal play against uh or several really really good plays I think against uh against Buffalo, including that near pick uh, that I'm referring to. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see him play. He's a great kid, too. So, you obviously love rooting for those guys. Well, up next, we'll do some turning of the tables and talk Gibson guitars here on the Saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. 
everybody is included. And that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and, and participate and add something. All right, welcome back to the last segment of the Saber.com podcast. We call it the Turning the Table segment where I'm in the driver's seat and Jeff Swetman talks music to tie it into our off-topic message board called The Corner. Uh, as a reminder, last week's uh, musical piece uh, focused on a album that Jeff himself is doing, and he is uh, running a GoFundMe for that. So we'll share that link again, um, a John Prine tribute album. Might be a double album. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah we're looking like uh, 20 or so tracks on it. Yeah, so pretty cool. And if you donate a certain amount, it's basically like making a pre-order where you'll get the album yourself. So that's pretty neat. Uh, so I wanted to mention that again. But the topic this week, Les Paul Guitars, the 2021 collection announcements have kind of come out with you know what, what they're doing in the guitar world this particular year. So you're getting kind of a, a Peter Frampton recreated classic. You've got a modern lineup. You've got a, a Slash from Guns N' Roses lineup, Captain Kurt from The Roots, right? So lots of different kind of guitar tie-ins with different famous people or famous guitar players built into the 2021 collection. So it kind of caught Jeff's eye uh, because a lot of obviously real famous guitarists play on Les Paul guitars. So, so kind of what caught your eye about these uh, new lineups and, and sort of this announcement? Well, I saw on the Tonight Show where uh, Captain Kirk Douglas had announced that his new uh, Gibson SG model, I guess, is coming out. I think this might be the second signature one that he's done. And it does get, you know, we don't want to get too technical because I certainly can't keep all this gear straight. But uh, it's kind of like those signature shoes. There's only a handful of players, right, that get their own signature shoe in basketball. So uh, <laughs> these are kind of the cream of the crop here. Uh, Marcus King is just an amazing kind of carrying that uh, Warren Haynes torch. He, he really reminds me, just kind of looks like him, <laughs> plays, sings like him. And uh, he's a he's a great young guitar player out of South Carolina. Tom Petty, they've uh, got a new Petty model, uh, an acoustic SJ2000 Wildflower, which uh, ties in, I'm sure, uh, to the Wildflower album, the deluxe reissue that recently came out. We talked about that in a, in a previous episode. And uh the Frampton, yeah, the, the Phoenix Les Paul Custom VOS. I guess Marcus King's it, it dates back to like the 1962. It's kind of an updated version of that uh, model. So all these guys have, you know, their own little quirks and <laughs> specs. And <laughs> if, you know, they can make a little bit of extra money in the in these kind of times, I'm sure they're more than willing to, to put their name in, uh, on something and, and help Gibson design a, a new guitar that their fan base will, uh, will respond to. Is there a guitars app like that sneakers app that trends on online all the time when a new shoe drops? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> guitars app. The one that caught my eye was the Slash Victoria Gold Top Guitar. <laughs> so a very specific one. Joins the Slash com collection, which marks the first evergreen guitar collection for, for the uh, Gibson Les Paul collection. So yeah. it's just interesting. Like you're saying, it really is like sneakerheads for these guys. So when I, when I think Slash, and you can talk about some other kind of famous guitar looks or scenes in music videos or whatever. When I think Slash, I always think November Rain, where for some bizarre reason, this wedding that occurs, this church is suddenly in a barren desert and here Slash is in a barren desert, just cranking on the guitar, right? So that's what I always think of when I think Slash is him solo yes. uh, in that video, kind of out in the desert playing his guitar. Yes, one of the most outrageous videos. Um, <laughs> I think the Funny or Die guys did a did a 
comment running commentary like a vh1 behind the music if it were right <laughs> just all making fun of videos it was that's pretty good so folks can track that down but but yeah over the years i mean slash certainly has been one of the the spokespeople and uh you know has always vouched for uh, the gibson les paul muddy waters um kind of gave him his signature sound uh, when he uh, electrified there uh, and had a revival in his career in the 60s uh, such a big influence on on so many of these guys but uh Ronnie Wood and Mick Taylor uh, from the Stones were noted uh, Gibson Les Paul players. Keith was more of a Fender guy, but he was the very first, I guess, big name to to uh, play the Sunburst Les Paul. So those early Stones records, he was he was rocking that one. Uh, Jeff Beck, Mark Bullen, one of my all time favorites, the T Rex. Pete Townsend, he's one of the iconic, you know, Les Paul guys from the Who. Clapton on his early stuff uh, was. Uh, was a Les Paul guy for sure. Um, when you talk about the Beatles, McCartney has always vouched for uh, for Les Paul in terms of being an innovator and just loving that tone of, of the the Gibson Les Paul. And George Harrison actually named his Gibson Les Paul Lucy, and it's the guitar that Clapton gave to him after he played the solo on "While My Guitar Gently Weeps." So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> everybody from you know Roy Orbison. Mick Jones of the Clash, Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols, Dwayne Allman, of course, Frank Zappa, Bob Marley. There were reports, I guess, at the time when he passed away that Bob Marley was buried with his guitar, but that turns out not to be true. It's in the Marley Museum in uh, Kingston, Jamaica. But uh, more modern player as like Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. Folks probably know he's always got it really low, like the <laughs> playing it down around his ankles practically. Gary Moore, great blues player, Jimmy Page. Led Zeppelin, of course, and uh, Neil Young and Mick Ronson. So those those were kind of the Les Paul Gibson players. But then there's the SG, which is kind of the more pointed style. Folks probably uh, recognize, you know, Townsend and Clapton and Dwayne Allman all played that. Derek Trucks, one of the best uh, Gibson SG players. Uh, Tony Iommi of uh, Black Sabbath, Angus Young of ACDC. That's the one that he plays. And uh Shout out to Sister Rosetta Tharp, too, one of the early innovators, uh, great singer and guitar player. She was a huge influence on a lot of the early blues players. You mentioned Lucy as the name of a guitar, and this is totally yeah. a tangent. This has nothing to do with guitars. But I think I heard on the Beatles satellite radio channel recently that the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds song yeah. was like written from one of the, the Beatles kids had done like a little drawing or something. Yep. <laughs> of their friend Lucy in the sky, right? And they just wrote this song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, right? So that's what, when you said Lucy, I don't know why my brain went there. I was like, oh, I just heard a story about that famous song recently. <laughs> that is funny, you know, I, and I wonder if that has something to do with the naming because that was a big controversy at the time. Everybody kind of assumed that it was an LSD reference, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but it was supposedly John Lennon. And, and there is... Uh, I've actually got a picture of that picture uh, from one of Julian Lennon's own solo albums in more recent years. He, he included the artwork and told the whole story of like, yes, this was an actual picture I drew when I was a kid and my dad loved it and was influenced. And he asked me what it was. And I said, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. So apparently that was the actual story. John Crazy, wasn't right? just trying to deflect from the controversy. So Sorry to go on a tangent. I know that. No, was pretty cool. Topic. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I just thought it was a neat story. The I'm not 100 percent sure, but Keb Mo, 
who I'm a Blues fan of, saw him and Taj Mahal live on their recent tour. I believe he plays a Gibson Les Paul guitar at times. I think he has different guitars that he plays, but um, that's just a name that that came to mind while you were listing off some others as well. So I know he plays a Gibson sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and it's tough. A lot of these guys play, you know, especially the the super famous ones that are they're playing all different kinds of stuff, but those are some of the more notable like ambassadors of the brand, I guess. <laughs> Right. So if you're looking for a slash Victoria gold top, did I get that right? I've already forgotten what it's called. The slash <laughs> gold right guitar <laughs> um, for your collection. 2021 is your, is your jam. <laughs> so take it out in the desert and rock out on your own solo. <laughs> <laughs> take it to the next wedding you go to, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And when you leave, you'll be out alone in the the barren wilderness. <laughs> See, it was social distancing before it was cool. Before it was cool. Right. <laughs> Speaking of social distancing, I will give another uh, mention. All the best from Six Feet Away. Uh, Jeff working on a double album, John Prine Tribute. So if you want to contribute to that and get sort of a pre-order vibe, if you donate a certain amount, please do. And we will link that again, uh, that from last week's podcast. And for now, thanks for listening. We'll see who's in Hokies on the hardwood. Uh, and we'll keep going position by position through football when we rotate back to another episode. Until then, uh, subscribe like, share, do all the things you do on social media. And thanks for listening.